0: Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi everyone, Jordy
1: here. My pronouns are she, her, and today I wanted to talk with you all a little bit about this book called The Swifts, A Dictionary of Scoundrels by Beth Lincoln. I'm really happy that I get to share my thoughts with you on this one because it is a junior fiction book, so the audience it is geared toward is definitely a much younger crowd than I am, but that's okay. A year or so ago, when I started picking up YA and junior fiction books again, I was met with a little bit of confusion as to why I'd want to read any of these books when I am a quote unquote adult. To that I say, reading is reading. I read to escape reality, to learn something new. And most importantly, for me, it's a means of happiness and pleasure, a straight shot of serotonin. So why not read all the books that sound interesting and fun? I still go back and watch movies from my childhood. Why not do the same with books? When I saw the Swifts sitting on the display shelf of a local bookstore, was I immediately drawn to the name because it reminded me of a certain singer? Yes, but even better than the title was the cover art. On the front of the book is an illustration of what I consider to be a gorgeous staircase And on the staircase are several characters in outfits that can only be described as memorable. And I needed to know their stories, especially because at the bottom of the stairs, you see a pair of boots attached to some legs that are lying at the bottom of the staircase in a suspicious manner. You can tell that something bad has happened to this person, and there is a mystery that needs to be solved. The book was calling to me and I needed to solve this mystery with this eclectic crew and there was even a cat on the cover, so how could I say no? But enough gushing about junior fiction and this gorgeous cover and illustrations by Claire Powell. Let's get into the book. On the day they are born, every Swift child is brought before the sacred family dictionary. They are given a name and a definition. A definition it is assumed they will grow up to match. Meet Shenanigan Swift, little sister, risk taker, mischief maker. Shenanigan is getting ready for the big Swift family reunion and plotting her next great scheme, hunting for Grand Uncle Vile's long lost treasure. She's excited to finally meet her arriving relatives until one of them gives Arch Aunt Schadenfreude a deadly shove down the stairs. So what if everyone thinks she'll never be more than a troublemaker just because of her name? shenanigan knows she can become whatever she wants even a detective and she's determined to follow the twisty clues and catch the killer deliciously suspenseful and delightfully clever the swifts is a remarkable debut that is both brilliantly contemporary and instantly classic a celebration of words and individuality it's packed with games wordplay and lots and lots of mischief as shenanigan sets out to save her family and define herself in a world where definitions are so important All right, this book made me so happy. The author uses etymology, the history of words, to explain how, just like language, people can change and evolve over time. I was even learning new words as I went through this book, and to me, that was one of the most exciting things as a reader. I don't know if you caught Arch-Aunt Schadenfreude's name, um, but the first time I heard that was actually at a Trevor Noah stand up and he explained that that word means to take pleasure from someone else's misery. And to tell you I had so much fun reading this book and learning new words, I could go on forever. But this book contained illustrations including a map of the Swift Mansion that included secret rooms and illustrations of different scenes that made the reading journey enjoyable and like I was in the room interacting with these characters. The Swift family is extensive, and within this family there were queer and interracial couples, a transitioning relative, a younger cousin who was questioning their gender identity, and all of this was portrayed in a way that felt genuine to the story and its characters, and that it would show children readers that, yeah, this is normal and this is what family looks like. I felt like this book gave a voice to children and encouraged them to believe that their youth was not a reason to invalidate their thoughts, feelings, or what they believe to be true. I know my younger self would have gone crazy for this book, just like my present self did. So if you're looking for a book to make you feel nostalgic, happy, intrigued, adventurous, and youthful, and if you enjoyed a series of unfortunate events as a child, then
0: this book is for you. Happy reading, friends. At Feminist Book Club, one of our favorite genres of nonfiction is learning the stories of the women behind famous or powerful men. So I am thrilled to share a brand new book with you. Parachute Women, Marianne Faithful, Marsha Hunt, Bianca Jagger, Anita Pallenberg, and the Women Behind the Rolling Stones by Elizabeth Winder. These four women worked tirelessly behind the scenes to help shape and curate the image of the Rolling Stones. This book is a beautiful, comprehensive group portrait of four women who were marginalized by the male-dominated rock world of the late 60s and early 70s, finally giving the women the credit they deserve for the impact on one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. Even if you're not a Rolling Stones fan, you'll be blown away by the audacity of these women, and you'll love the rock and roll stories Elizabeth Winder shares in these pages. Perfect for readers of Girls Like Us, Parachute Women by Elizabeth Winder is out now from #HashatBooks. Books. Thank you for sponsoring today's podcast.
2: Hello, listener. This is a quick disclaimer to tell you that this is a live and in-store recorded interview. So there may be a few sounds we don't usually hear in our interviews, but I hope it's not too distracting for you. Hope you enjoy. Sit back and relax. Hokey dokie. Hello, Fitness Book Club listeners. My name is Alana Amor-Colvin. I use she, they pronouns, and I'm joined by Lucy Yu at UME Books in New York City to talk about bookstore ownership in New York City. I wanted to talk about this topic because the bookstore industry is sort of like booming again, especially right out of COVID, which is really weird. But also in New York City, the rent increases and just the economy is really, really weird. So we're going to talk about what it's like to own a bookstore in this day and age, how to do it, and also celebrate women owned businesses and people of color owned businesses. So we're here with Lucy, Yu. would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about yourself?
3: Hello, my name is Lucy Yu. I use she/her pronouns, and I own You and Me Books in New York City. It's the first female Asian American bookstore in New York City. Pr-pr-pr- cute air horn. Yeah, I'm super excited to chat today because there's a lot of nuances in running a bookstore, and I think to the outside, it's like this really exciting, fun thing, which it is. And on top of that, you know, there's a lot of a lot of stuff that happens in the background.
2: Cool, 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 cool. So you were previously working as a chemical engineer and a supply chain manager. What was the jump from that career, which is like pretty, pretty dope on the economic end
3: to jump starting next door? Yeah, I had a solid income as an engineer, supply chain manager, like that's a thankless job. If you never hear anything, that means you're doing really well, but you do get paid well as well. I had a retirement plan and I said goodbye to all that to start my own business and I had always wanted to build out that kind of economically viable career so that I can do something creative, in which I always wanted to do. I wanted to go to art school. I wanted to be a creative person. I couldn't afford it. And so I thought the way to do it is my way and let's go full nerd. Let's go engineer. And I... Number one, I learned a lot of skills that helped me run the bookstore like I do now. I failed a ton of times, and so I'm much less afraid of failure now. And without it, I wouldn't have been able to create the savings that I would to open up the store without investors. It was a community-funded bookstore through GoFundMe and also all of my savings.
2: So obviously there are still a lot of effects due to COVID. Was that helpful? to you having an experience considering you started you books right as shit was hitting the fan?
3: I'm a chaotic person. (laughs) Chaos doesn't scare me, but having to manage, I was working in food. So Mm. food supply chain was incredibly stressful during COVID. There was a shelf life, it has to be refrigerated. And at the same time, I really wanted to be mindful as a supply chain manager, especially to the people picking and packing the food because Who's our end customer versus who's actually working out in the warehouses? Our end customer can afford to stay home, to have food shipped to them. The people working in the warehouses have to go there every single day during COVID. And so there were times when the whole facility had to shut down because someone got COVID and we had to just stop operations. And as a supply chain manager at the time, I was like, that's the top priority. I'm not going to worry about soups and smoothies getting to like (laughs) Linda in Wisconsin. So I think managing stress, managing a lot of moving parts was something that I learned and I could manage. Secondary, like it it just put a lot of things into perspectives. At that time, I was like, literally the worst thing that happens is someone doesn't get their smoothie, someone doesn't get their grain bowl. But when we're looking at prioritization, this is someone's life that they're putting on the line every day, working in the warehouse, trying to get this food out. So I, I needed to make sure that people's health was top priority and building the bookstore, that was also something that was always top of mind for me, making sure my employees and my coworkers have everything that they need. One year in, the second that we were profitable, the first thing I invested money in was healthcare. Mm. So we have health insurance, dental vision for the employees here that are full-time. So what was less stressful,
2: working supply chain during COVID or (laughs) opening
3: a bookstore in New York City? always stressful in different ways. And I don't know why I keep putting myself in these stressful situations. (laughs) People are like, you can have like a really chill life. You can just like watch reality TV. And like, I love that. And I just couldn't do it. Like, I'm just not a chill person. Like, I try so hard to be chill and I've got. But I would say both taught me to manage stress in really unique ways. And I got creative about the ways that I manage stress.
2: So what were some things about running this store that were surprising to you? There was a lot of things,
3: but I would say probably the biggest things was the technicalities of actually opening, the licensing, the permits. I had to get a lawyer and the word lawyer scares me. And so having to go about hiring a lawyer for myself, I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Another thing was taxes as a small business. There aren't, enough resources for small businesses to manage taxes, to manage finances. And as someone who's doing all of it, you're managing payroll, you're managing supply chain inventory. I'm the social media manager. I'm making all the graphics. And on top of that, I'm trying to understand how can we optimize our business? So...
2: All that on top of also being based in New York City, where rent and the general cost of living is like absolutely insane all the time. Quite a few smaller bookstores have opted into adding like a cafe or a smaller menu. Do you feel like that's necessary for bookstores now, or do you feel like it's more of like a, a nice complimentary
3: thing or both? There was never a business plan that I created that didn't have a cafe and a bar in it that I accounted for maybe 15, 20% of our revenue stream coming in from those aspects of the business. And without that, I don't think we would have been able to survive as just a bookstore. A year in, I found different things that were helpful to kind of like understand bulk ordering, to ramp up the actual book ordering of the business. But at the beginning, that was, that was a top priority of mine to, to have those extra revenue streams so that we can be sustainable. Do you use Book Manager? No. What do you use to process your books and your inventory? We have Basil as a POS system, mostly because it's cloud-based, so it's cheaper. Book manager, you have to buy the hardware, so it ends up being a couple of dollars upfront.
2: For those who may not be familiar, that's how bookstores sort of keep track of their inventory. What's it like getting authors into the store? Because having events is a big part of bookstore income as well.
3: Events is a really big thing for us cuz not only is it income based it creates a larger community sense so it brings people in that and for us 99% of our events are free so having more accessibility to books and readings is really important to us when we first started i was really that we weren't going to get any authors in so i was like okay let's let's put on your most charming little and try to bring authors in but it turns out that Authors were hungry for the space, just as I was, and that that took me by surprise. When I first opened up, I had tons of DMs from Asian American authors, BIPOC authors, reaching out, being like, "I'm so excited about this! How can I help support?" And the events kind of started flooding from there. We had to do huge pause on events because, as you said, I opened in peak December of 2021. Delta variant, Omicron, it just hit us, and we weren't able to start events. I think until the following spree. So we tried to pivot. We tried to invest in a D2C business. So being a partner of bookshop.org, trying to do pre-order campaigns for authors so that we would ship out all the books ourselves and virtual events as well. But once we started pivoting into in-person events that kind of allowed us while being COVID safe to, to create an environment that community focused and also engaged in Asian American literature in a way that I, I never even dreamed of. It was really exciting. It's a really unique
2: approach to angle the events towards the promotion of reading and engaging with the literature. Right. Versus the ticket sales of the actual event. Right. In its own way, it still encourages people to like purchase the book if they haven't already.
3: That's like big brain. I, if I want to go to an event and someone's like, you have to pay to get it. I'm to like, function. and then pay for the book. And then and pay they, for the yeah. book. Like, I, I just feel... That barrier to entry for me was really difficult as a kid, and so why would I do that for the generation? Now?
2: Yeah, it's like it ends up being around like nearly forty dollars just to like sit
3: and like watch, and- you know. But yeah. like I know, and like go like shoulder to shoulder.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned that you also manage the social media. Yes. How was that balance?
3: It's terrible. So <laughs> just super upfront, I'm not a social media person. I know, unfortunately, at this point, it's necessary to invest in a social media as a small business. I think a lot of people, my generation, younger generation, older, everyone, everyone finds things through social media. So that's something that I have to develop. I have somewhat of a creative background. Like I did a lot of art growing up, but in terms of creating a social media presence that like makes me stick to the red stomach every single day. Like, so I'm a super corny person. Like, I am, like, peak dad joke. Like, my friend told me this weekend, she's like, you're giving Hawaiian dad. Like and that's, I think my whole vibe. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to be anything but myself. I'm going to bring in peak Hawaiian dad humor into this social media. Like, whatever puns that I make is just going to be, people are going to roll their eyes, but either they're going to like it or not. And I think just... Being myself in the best way that I could while giving the information necessary for all the things that we're hosting was a bit of a relief. And I literally like black out and write a paragraph and then post. And then I'll read it and I'll be like, there's like three typos. Let me just go back in and fix that really quick. But it makes it a lot less exhausting.
2: Do you have any tips for other bookshop owners or booksellers who may be struggling with social media?
3: Just being really upfront about my voice and being really authentic in the best way that I could was was the best thing that I could do for social media. Because the less exhausting social media is, then the more engaged you are in it and the more engaged I think other people are in it. Like, I feel like people can feel exhaustion and people can feel effort that's inauthentic. So I think if you're corny and you have like, you think you're funny? Like, go go do that. Like, I thought I was funny, and I'm like, I don't, I don't. People are not laughing, but that's okay.
2: Can you talk about the UME book book clubs?
3: Yeah, we did focus mostly on BIPOC authors and stories, and it was for me during COVID so so relieving every month when we had that book club date, and we would all be on Zoom and be like, we can just talk like whatever we want for four hours about literature, like. I know it was a vessel for us to really just hang out together, but it was it was beautiful. And I became a lot closer with these people in my book club because of it. And that was something that I thought was necessary for community aspects. So we can take engagement for literature to a new level. Pretentiousness of literature is really exhausting for me. And a book club allows all of us to be like, okay, look, I didn't understand what they were saying, but let's talk about it in a way that's not like, I'm afraid that I'm not well-read or not saying the right things, or I don't dislike or like the same authors as you do. We're just talking about it in terms of just baseline literature. One of my friends, Brittany, she reached out to, she cold emailed me and she was like, hey, I'm a bookstagrammer. Do you need help hosting a book club? And that day I was literally like creating graphics for potential book clubs. It was perfect serendipitous moment. And now she helps me host the book clubs every month. And I was like, I don't know if anyone's going to come to the book club. And we sell out every month. Yeah. Which is wild. I'm like, yes, New York City, like nerdy book club culture. So it's it's really fun for us. And so it's hosted in person at the store. Have your home bookshelves bloomed since owning a bookstore? I'm a little scarred from hoarding hundreds of books before opening up the store. So now that like in a very small apartment, I I like try to limit the amount of books there. So the second that I finish a book, I usually actually resell it back as a used book in the shop. But if it really resonates with me, I'll keep it, I'll underline it. So I think my books are pretty well curated at home. But when I did move to this apartment, four out of my eight boxes were all books in the movers were like... Why?
2: Actually, same. I have I have like a foldable like levy thing yeah. that I've been keeping because of like the fact I moved like five times during COVID. It was super cute. Was five
3: times? Super cute. Five, five times. Um, I
2: moved to Florida thinking that it was going to be like Two, three, summer break. For sure. Summer for break. Sure. And then I was there for six months and it was terrible because I am black. In Florida. And it was 2020 and I lived in a house full of Trump supporters. What the fuck? And they were Trump supporters that were like, the Lysol thing, they were all for that. Like it was deep, it was deep. Like these, are, these were Trump supporters who were like, verbatim said like, black people just want something to be mad about, like there's an actual issue going. And then my mommy came and got me. Is your mom in Florida? And no, she's in Ohio, so now I moved to Ohio. <laughs> And then I studied for a month and then my school was like, oh, like we're going to be back on campus. And then two weeks before our first day of school, they were like, psych, it's going to be remote. But I had already signed a lease. So I moved to Boston and then I was in Boston for a while. And then I moved three times, but it felt like five.
3: But this wasn't like apartment department apartment from Brooklyn to Brooklyn. This was yeah. a like, statement. So yeah, I think yeah. Every move was three moves. Yeah. So you moved nine times is what
2: I image, Do you ever feel like you deal with tokenism being thrust upon you due to the historic marking of UME books
3: all the time? I think it's really exhausting and I don't know how many times I have to say we're not an Asian American bookstore for people to believe that we're not an Asian American bookstore. It's really exhausting because if I if I didn't look the way I did, if I didn't have the cultural background, and I opened up a bookstore I have to push against the grain all the time. And why isn't immigrant literature, Asian American literature, BIPOC literature, why isn't that just good literature? Why aren't those just books? Why I don't James
2: Baldwin other?
3: I, I just, it's it's when you automatically categorize in the other category just so it can be marketable, it's really frustrating because I I think that also pigeonholes our customer base when people are like, oh. You're an Asian American bookstore it's only for Asian Americans. It's like absolutely not true. Do you know how many white authors I read in my lifetime? Like, do you think that I I am a white woman? Like, no. Like, it's just I read it because it's good literature. And in the same way, like people should read books written by people that look like me because it's good literature. Right now in the publishing industry, we are seeing a shift in terms of investment into writers of color and stories like my parents and my my family, but. When it's marketed, I I have like, I don't know, I'm just like sitting behind the counter drinking wine with a big eye roll because it's like, oh, Asian American, multi-generational family story, like immigrant, like check, check, check. Like what's going to be the the top seller for this? I'm like, and I read it and it has nothing to do with the book. And I'm like, okay, I understand that the public, publishing industry thinks they know what we want. And, you know, it's what's interesting about the store is like the New York Times bestsellers don't sell well here. And I think that's very telling about what is being pushed by publishing and what do readers that look like me actually want to read. I work at a bookstore in Brooklyn and something that we get
2: a lot as a bookstore that has a lot of brown people. A lot of times customers come in and they go, where's your... Black literature section. And sometimes, if they're older Black people, they're almost hostile about it. I have to say, like, we don't segregate our books. Like, they're all there. Do you experience
3: this here as well? All the time. Where's your this section? And it's like, fiction is fiction. And our categories encompass everything that's fiction. And our curation is that. And I think the hostility towards it Is really exhausting, but that just means we have a lot of work to do in terms of understanding that segregating cultures and within literature is very unhelpful. And it is part of the issue of overall representation. And I think it's the issue of like, what sells? How do we market? Like, all of that is part of it. And so it's, I I get that. And I have to try not to eye roll in front of someone <laughs> but yeah we got that a lot too part of the thing that sort of
2: bothers me is that
3: all of the publishing
2: being regarding people of color started in 2020 right it's not genuine no and part of the reason they keep using these buzzwords for these these groups of people and i can almost go off a of memory like yeah. black queer woman mm-hmm. trauma mm-hmm. <laughs> like generational trauma. trauma yeah always yeah. trauma Always three generations, generation. never more, because it's too exhausting. Yeah, any more than that. Either sexism, or like if it if it comes from Africa or the islands or the Caribbean, Caribbean at all, it's going to be like colonization. Yes, every yes. single time. A hundred. And this is it's
3: getting stale to us people of color. Hi, welcome. Yes, yes, you can just put the cans on the ground over there. Thank you so much. Sorry. Type
2: of <laughs> and it's exhausting to people of color because we, first of all, clock that immediately. right? And then the same cutout has been used for the last three years, which right. also makes it clear that there are no people of color working right. there and having those conversations. And the covers are the same. Yeah. So if you're, if you're working in publishing or marketing, or if you're a graphic designer in publishing, shake it up.
3: As a bookstore owner, what are what
2: are you currently reading right now?
3: reading Contemporary. I'm reading Middlemarch, and my friend saw me bring it to the beach, and he was like, are you good? What? <laughs> answer is no. You're like, reading Middlemarch to the beach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been on Middlemarch for two months. <laughs> it's a brick of a book. And it's chunky. Listen, so I...
2: Baby it got all, back.
3: Yeah, baby back, and it broke my back. I've been wanting to read it because I actually... I've been hearing a lot of... Asian American female writers specifically say that that's their favorite piece of literature. Mm. So when I read Free food Millionaires*, *Middlemarch* was referenced multiple times. When I read *Beautiful Country*, it was referenced there, and I was like, "Wow, these like Asian American women are also not okay." And I'm reading *Middlemarch*, and uh, honestly, it's it's freaking phenomenal. I am like eating it up, underlined, highlighted, and it's wild that also reading East of Eden, I was like, damn, like, they wrote a complex Asian-American character. I gave it to my mom, and she read East of Eden, and now I sent her march and she's going to read it. And it's, it's cool because these are, what, quote-unquote classics, which I already hate the word classics, but my immigrant mom is out here talking to me about East of Eden, two hours on the phone, FaceTime, and she's like trying to analyze this like biblical reference. And I'm like, you know what? This is cool. We're having a cross-generational moment. And we're talking about these very nuanced things that happened in America and how we played a part of it. It just means a lot to me that like these quote unquote classics are now accessible for me and my mom. like, I want to be able to give Middlemarch to an 18-year-old Gen Z coming in with her cute pants and being like, look slaps. <laughs> so, I don't know. That's a very long answer for what I'm reading. <laughs> That's a
2: great answer. Booksellers and bookshop owners are reading *Middle March* in the East of Eden. Eating hot Cheetos. Eating hot Cheetos on the beach. It's a look. It's the way to go. I, this has been so fun. It's been so lovely. It was so great meeting you. Thanks, it was nice meeting you too. Those books will be mentioned in our show notes, as well as all the places you can find UME books.
0: Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A